0: Welcome to Raiders of the Lost podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss The Sixth Sense. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. Today we're talking about The Sixth Sense. This came out in 1999, directed and written by M. Night Shyamalan, a frightened, withdrawn Philadelphia boy who communicates with spirits, seeks the help of a disheartened child psychologist. And on IMDb, this has an 8.1 rating. It's a top-rated IMDb film on that list at number 156, 86% Ron Tomato score from the critics, 90% audience score. $627 $627 million at the box office on a budget of $40 million. This film was nominated for six Oscars. It didn't win any, but I could have seen it winning for Best Screenplay, maybe Best Director. But I mean, again, 1999 was an absurd year for films coming out. We did a whole episode in 1999. It's like one of the best years ever just for film in general. So many iconic films came out that year. And I also could have seen Bruce Willis getting nominated. He didn't get nominated for Best Lead Actor, but it is a, a really it's best performance of his career for sure. It was a big year for, for actors, too. I mean, so Best Actor. Kevin Spacey? Kevin Spacey yeah. won for American Beauty. That was the year American Beauty cleaned up shop. Denzel was nominated for The Hurricane. Russell Crowe, Sean Penn, Richard Farnsworth. So there was a lot of great performances going on in that year. Also Green Mile, The Matrix, so many movies came out. Yeah, this was such a gigantic success. I mean, $600 million for... Uh, a movie that's not about superheroes or, or franchise or a big blockbuster studio pick, that's a big deal. And this was a sleeper hit. No one was really talking about this film at all before it came out. And even Entertainment Weekly, that the popular magazine, um, they're supposed to be like experts on film. They didn't even, <laughs> they didn't even put it up in, in their list of the over 100 anticipated movies of the summer of yeah. that year. 134 so, film summer preview of 1999, Sixth Sense was not on the list. So nobody saw this film coming, although obviously the – The studio thought it would be a hit because they put it in the summer. You don't put a movie in the summertime unless you think it's going to make money. So they, I think they knew what they had in their hands. Yeah, and in 2007, the American Film Institute ranked this as the 89th greatest movie of all time. This is one of the newest entries of the list at the time, but again, this is 2007, so I'm sure plenty more have been added to that list. It might not even be in the top hundred anymore. I wouldn't put it in my top hundred, but it's still a great movie. And this is like this is a time before you know the internet. This is still early. This is the 90s, so it's still before everyone had, you know, a smartphone and social media. Well, there was like AIM and like email. And a few websites. There was like seven websites. (laughs) (laughs) But this movie became so successful through word of mouth. It's one of those rare things like Blair Witch Project. Same thing. Word of mouth. Just fever pitch. Everybody was talking about this movie of all ages, even when we were kids, Everyone was talking about, "Oh, we saw Six Sense! Oh my God, it was amazing!" And you hear, it was just like this chirping all over the place of. Everyone buzzing about The Sixth Sense and its amazing twist and how you never see anything like it. And that's what really drove people into the box office. Yeah, we won't reveal the twist for a little bit. I say we go like 10 minutes or something like yeah, that yeah, before we reveal the twist and everything. But this was one of those films because, again, this like Anthony was saying, this is pre-superhero juggernaut box office smash. This is before Spider-Man, even in 2001. This is before Batman. Before begins. X-Men. This is X-Men was in, what, 2000? So this is right before that. Obviously, we had a couple Blade movies. Um, not some, huge hits, And some like Marvel comic book movies here and there, but they weren't massive. And obviously the Batman movies were terrible in the 90s. So this, <laughs> this movie post-Titanic, which Titanic was the king of the box office for several years, um, that came out in 1997. But still, this movie making $627 million at the box office is absurd for that time. This wasn't M. Knight's first movie. He actually made two movie- movies before this. The first one was like a... $750,000 budget. He plays a lead character that mo- goes back to India to learn about his roots and his family and his past and reconnect with that part of his life. And then he made a movie in 1998 that's called something Awakens. Awakening, sir. No, not Awakenings. That's directed, but by- that's actually a really good movie. So I was actually, I've always assumed that The Sixth Sense was his debut, but I'm, I'm incorrect in that. So this movie, it came out in 1998. Oh, I'm pulling up real quick on IMDb. But, but it makes sense that this isn't his first movie to get because the studio gave him $40 million. So it would make sense that they saw him as a proven director with other projects, knowing that he could pull off uh, a movie. Because that's a lot of money to invest in a drama that doesn't have huge action, huge set pieces. You just... Mainly focusing on this little kid and one actor for the most of the film, so that makes sense that he had proven himself before. Well, so 1992, he made *Praying with Anger*, that was his first uh, feature film. Then *Wide Awake* was the film in 1998. That was actually a box office bomb on a six hundred million, six million, <laughs> sorry, six million dollar budget. He uh, that film grossed less than a quarter of a million dollars, so it was Ouch. it was a bomb. I haven't seen it, so I don't know how if it's a good movie. But the ratings on IMDb are under six. But I think what. Got M Night the shot with, with the Sixth Sense is the script because as soon as he wrote that, in the first day it was on sale, it sold like immediately. So I think the script is what gave the studio the backing for forty million dollars to make this movie. Yeah, oftentimes scripts they're, they're bouncing around the industry before they're sold, and people are agents are reading them, producers, actors, directors are reading scripts before they're ever sold, and so I'm sure that everyone was talking in Hollywood was talking about this script. And waiting for it to go on sale. Yeah, and you could easily say it's his best screenplay in his entire career. It is really a brilliant script. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at Patreon.com/slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedules, personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts on the show, and weekly bonus episodes. We also just launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast, our twenty-two chapter, forty-six video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website raidersofthelostpodcast.com It's right there on the home page. You can also check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Thank you so much for tuning in around the world. Be sure to subscribe, follow, hit the notification bells wherever you're tuning in. And then obviously... A main reason why the movie even got recognition probably from the trailer and posters and marketing is because Bruce Willis is your is your star. Yeah. And Bruce Willis was gigantic at this time in his career. He's the nineties were really big for him. And Yeah, he made a ton of great movies. Pulp Fiction, Die Hard. Yeah. I mean Twelve Monkeys, Unbreakable After This. Moonrise Kingdom, obviously now Looper, but The Fifth Element was also a huge movie. He just opened the uh, Planet Hollywood restaurant <laughs> <laughs> with That's Arnold right. Schwarzenegger, <laughs> huge star. <laughs> um, but um, and he was he was demand he was getting twenty million dollars a movie, like he was ho- top of the mountain of Hollywood in the nineties. And he actually never, <clears throat> excuse me, he never intended to be in this film. He was uh, basically strong armed, forced into this movie by the studio, by Disney. Actually, it's it, what happened was Bruce Willis, he starred in this film called The Broadway Baller, Brawler about a hockey player. And he like uh, it's, he develops a romantic uh, relationship with a woman in the neighborhood. And it's like a, a dark romantic comedy. And they were in production of this film for a couple months and then it shut down. And the entire production was was just canceled because Bruce Willis was fighting with the director and producers constantly. And then eventually it got so bad on set that they just shut the entire thing down. And the studio had funneled uh, 28 million dollars into the production like they were like halfway done with filming no one's ever seen footage of this movie it's just always been locked up uh, nothing ever came out no posters or anything but the entire thing was just destroyed mostly because of bruce willis and so uh, the studio uh, was um preparing a lawsuit against him and it was going to be like su- suing him for like 18 million dollars or something so he was facing big litigations Um, because he would have to pay that, and also his own legal expenses. So, who knows how much that would cost him in total? And so, eventually, he signed a he made a deal with Disney, who was the overseeing company. They owned the company that made that small movie, because Disney owns a bunch of production companies. And so, the deal was Bruce Willis signed a three picture movie deal with Disney as a way to make up for ruining the production of the Broadway Brawler. And part of the so the three movies he made as part of this deal were Armageddon the sixth sense and disney's the kid. So that's why he did the the kid And, you know that that little when the young version oh, of him yeah. you know that movie. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. I remember why, we saw that. When that's we were why kids. he did that movie. It's not so it's not like he wanted to make that movie. He had to. He didn't want to make Armageddon. He had to. And he didn't want to make the Sixth Sense. He had to. And the way that the studio made their money back was because he owed they owed he owed them like 18-17 million dollars from the, the the ruined movie. And so his contract uh, he, he was his quote for being in a movie was20 million dollars at the time, like that's how much he got paid every movie he was in. And so he was only paid three million dollars for Armageddon as opposed to his normal 20 million dollars. so that was basically him paying Disney back by making Armageddon for only three, $3 million and then also making six cents in the kid. But also, I think he got back-end on The Sixth Sense and ended up making like $100 million off of it. Probably, yeah. So, like, it was a win-win for him. He didn't have to make that movie The Brawler. That yeah. he, he And Armageddon to do. was a giant hit, too. Yeah, so that was huge. So he ended up becoming filthy rich off of yeah. that situation. But it's also—that happens a lot with actors. It's not always like a fight that happens on set, but it can be something as simple as Edward Norton was in a super similar situation where he was doing the Italian job. You know, it's kind of out of character for an Edward Norton kind of role. But he confirmed that he was doing it because he was contractually obligated to do it with the. Studio because they took a took a shot on him and went on a limb to make Fight Club with him, so that was like his payment for making Fight Club. Like, hey, if you do this, do this for us over here. Hey, not talent job's good. Yeah, it's good, yeah. but I mean, you know, I, I think that's something that like it's he, not something that he, he was would doing. choose. Yeah, like I don't think he would pick. Now that on he purpose. would do it. Maybe he was the Hulk. I mean, yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> 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 but I, I still think that The Sixth Sense is M Night's best script. You know, we talk about how he's a hit-or-miss director nowadays. He's made so many movies, and uh, I would say half of them are good, half of them are meh. And <laughs> the the big problem with him is a lot of the dialogue can be corny and cheesy. Even a movie like The Village, which I really like, that dialogue can be a bit much. And yeah, I'm even split up. the dialogue. Yeah, and especially Old was solid. It was a good movie, but like— the dialogue sometimes I'm just like, come on, who, like, can we do a yeah. second draft on the dialogue here? I've always said that he needs a co-writer to like iron out his his dialogue. His ideas are genius. Yeah. I mean, this is a genius script and a genius idea. And so his inspiration, according to M Night Shyamalan, Shyamalan for The Sixth Sense, is it was inspired by an episode of. Are You Afraid of the Dark? Remember that TV (laughs) show on Nickelodeon when we were kids? It was the episode The Tale of the Dream Girl in 1994, directed by David Winning, in which leading characters are ignored by somebody and do not realize that they are dead until the final moment. The Tale of the Dream Girl, a brother, discovers that only his sister can see him, and she ultimately shows him his own obituary. Oh, wow. It's also um, similar to a film called The Others, a Spanish film, and then the remake starring Nicole Kidman, um, where it's a... I don't want to spoil it. Well, actually... Just saying it's like it is spoiling it. But it's a similar ghost story. Way to go, The others. Way to go. I didn't spoil it. (laughs) (laughs) And The Sixth Sense also being a huge box office success was an enormous – VHS and DVD release success. And so in March 28th, 2000, that's when it was released on VHS and DVD. It went on to becoming the top selling DVD of 2000 with over 2.5 million units shipped of DVDs sold, as well as being the top video rental of all time, beating out Star Wars in AT at that time. So that was in 2000. But now, you know, Netflix took over the DVD rental game and Finding Nemo is now number one and it's not even close. <laughs> <laughs> and but, but rentals and DVD sales and VHS sales were huge money making opportunities for studios because you don't they don't have to they don't have to split the profits with anyone they with a the movie theater release they have to split the profits with theaters not 50-50 completely but sometimes it's pretty stark the 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 portion of profits that theaters can get so when a movie comes out on DVD or VHS when it used to the studios profits were gigantic they got like 95% of the profits cuz they did the production uh, like cheap cheap and then sold it for like 20 bucks a DVD so that was an opportunity for them to make a lot of money that's how fight club made ended up making its money back not from theatrical release but from DVD sales yeah and this movie it's it was such a huge sensation in popular culture Everyone was talking about it, even kids, adults. Everyone was like, you got to see The the Sixth Sense, and everyone was still talking about it. I feel like it's kind of just lost that iconic status over the last several years because so many great movies have come out. It's it's pretty old. I think it's because Shyamalan's become so known for his twists. Yeah. Whereas this twist is like it lost its power and its impact because he keeps doing twists. True. So like the twist ending of this movie is what makes it so good. That's what fulfills the emotional stakes of the entire film. At the time, no one saw this twist coming. No one expected it. And that's why it was a sensation. That's why everyone was telling everyone they knew to go see The Sixth Sense, wait till the ending, to see what happens. But I think that like a lot of people, they suffer from memory bias. And so they'll look back and be like, oh, yeah, I saw the twist coming the whole time. <laughs> it happens a lot in pop culture. People like, we see it a lot. I in, Dude, yeah. no one saw this guy damn twist yeah. coming. If you did, if you saw it and you guessed it the first time, for real, good for you. But I think most of the people who say that they saw it coming are so full of s. That's like you got someone who commented that uh, he predicted the twist of tenet, of tenet 20 minutes in and you replied like, oh wow, you predicted the, the ending without knowing the villain, the setup, or the stakes. Wow, Or the amazing. rules of the yeah, world. Or the rules. Or yeah. how time inversion works. Yeah. Congratulations, you figured it out. Yeah, so, such BS. But this, this twist, we're going to spoil it now because yeah, we're, so, we're deep yeah. enough in. Bruce Willis um, thinking that he's uh, alive in a, psy- a child psychologist trying to help Cole, uh, discovers by the end of the film that he actually is one of the ghosts that Cole can see. He just was unaware of him being dead. Yeah, so Bruce Willis plays Dr. Malcolm Crow. And I like this character a lot because it's he seems to kind of have sort of like when we talk about Dr. Strange where Dr. Strange, Stephen Strange, he only takes on cases that he knows he can cure or... Help his career, and maybe it kind of seems like Dr. Malcolm Crowe has that effect or has that kind of mentality. Somewhat, of course, he gets that award from Philadelphia for his service to the city. They call him his son for outstanding care to child child psychology. But in cases like Vincent Gray, he couldn't help that boy, and we don't know exactly how that situation ended, whether he fully tried or not, or maybe he was like, I can't do anything for him, so I'm just going to move on, which caused Vincent Gray to decay even more mentally. I would guess that Vincent saw a bunch of therapists and psychologists, and then it got to the point where maybe he was just institutionalized at a certain age like maybe he aged out of Bruce Willis of Malcolm's Specialty. Yeah, but you know it seems I mean? like Malcolm was also very much oriented to having the most successful career he possibly could have. Yeah, because his his wife uh she hints that Anna hints that uh, she he'd put uh work first and her second. Even though at the end he says you were, you were never, never second. <laughs> second. <laughs> it's an emotional ending. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I will say I have ne- I have not been very kind to this film over like the last decade or so because I've always viewed the twist from, like, a practical standpoint. And, and it used to bug me how, like, Bruce uh, – Malcolm would just show up in these scenes and these sequences. Like, the practicality of him being involved in the story, is it oh, it's always bugged me. Um, like, the scene when he's just sitting with, Ann, with Lynn waiting for Cole to come home. Like, how does he not know that – like, why, how did he get there? And didn't he try to have a conversation with her, but she didn't respond? And, like – Bruce, even knowing about Cole, him having researched Cole and knowing all about him, and uh, being even being hired to be the therapist to Cole, and, th- and how does he even have an appointment to see Cole? Those things, um, I've, over the past like decade or so, I've it's always bugged me about this movie, the practicality of it. But seeing it again, I just feel dumb because I never really tied together the perspective of a ghost, because, um. Bruce, Malcolm is just drawn to Cole the same way other ghosts are drawn to Cole. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, and he also says that like, you know, for ghosts, time isn't, time isn't the same as for humans. So they, they perceive time differently. It's not like, um, linear, linear, you know what I mean? They just find themselves in situations, um, inexplicably. And so when I, when I saw this film, for the for a, probably like the fifth time to prep for this episode for the first time in like a decade yeah for the first time in a while I finally tied it all together where you don't you don't need to explain the practicality of how Malcolm gets into these situations and his how he's actually involved into the story because ghosts are that's the way ghosts are in the world that Shyamalan set up yeah so Cole what he says when he confesses to Malcolm his secret he says obviously. I see dead people. people. Iconic line in cinema. Yeah, it's top 10 lines. And um, then he continues explaining the situation of what he sees and talking about the ghost. He says, they only see what they want to see. They find me. They don't know they're dead. So that's why... Malcolm doesn't know he's dead the entire film because he's only seeing what he wants to see. That's why he sees the door under the stairs that isn't blocked by by the shelf and books. But for, for some reason he can't open it. But at the end yeah. of the film, he when he realizes he's a ghost, the shelf has books all over it. So I think it's actually – Well, it's actually – there's no shelf there at all blocking the door. He just can't open it for some reason. No, it, because that's what he's seeing. He's yeah. seeing no yeah, shelf, yeah. but there's yeah. really a table there with yeah. books yeah. because yeah. Anne put all yeah, that yeah. stuff yeah, yeah. there. So the situations like that are why Malcolm doesn't know that he's a ghost. But there are actually a, a ton of hints of Malcolm being a ghost throughout the entire film. Oh, it sounds like you got a list oh, ready. I got, I got a list ready. So here we go. Hence that Malcolm is a ghost. Him him and his wife never speak words back and forth. He speaks at her, he speaks to her or at her. Sometimes she mumbles something in the distance like off while she's asleep or at the anniversary dinner she says happy anniversary but not to him just in any direction in general. His wife is constantly watching the wedding videos when she basically, you could assume, cries herself to sleep every night. Malcolm's wardrobe consists of basically the same outfit with just slight variations of the night he was shot in every scene. His wife is on antidepressants, which which him being a psychologist, he should know about. And why is she depressed? I should have been able to analyze this at some point during our marriage. Cole's mother mother is staring basically at nothing when – kind of looking in malcolm's direction when they're sitting in the in that waiting room in in the foyer when cole comes into the house um when malcolm is talking to cole and cole reveals the secret that i see dead people he's looking right at malcolm the whole time but what's what happened well, to the, also one there's another thing that happens a lot is um cole only speaks to malcolm when they're alone exactly yeah even though cole has shared scenes with many other characters When Cole and Malcolm are entering Kira's room at her wake, Malcolm is standing directly behind Cole. However, when the camera cuts to the shadows on the floor as the door opens, we only see Cole's shadow, another clue that Malcolm is actually dead. Also on the doorknob, we can see the reflection of Cole's face but not Malcolm's face, although we can probably see his body in that shot. So tons of little things like that for sure go on through the entire film. Wow, that's a a great list. Thanks, man. I like the shadow one. The shadow one is really cool. And Bruce is really great in this because – you know, he's always been, like, the sarcastic action hero, wise guy, really charming. Um, but in this film, you saw a new facet to Bruce Willis, and, you know, he's very kind. He's so soft-spoken. He seems very, um, very nurturing and very different from anything we've seen Bruce Willis do before. I think that's why people really love this performance from him, because it was so different from what he would have ever had ever done on film yeah I love how it opens up with the awards a great opening sequence where he he's him and his wife are talking about the worm he's just talking about the, the frame and he's very silly he's like speaking in yeah. Dr. Seuss and and being very funny and charming but goofy and, and like nerdy in a way to his wife and then obviously they go upstairs and he gets shot by Vincent Gray his old patient Donnie Wahlberg Donnie Wahlberg who lost 40 pounds for this role and then we assume he survives this gunshot wound because then it cuts to his first session with Cole where he follows into the church and everything. Or he's watching Cole. And then I love the first interaction with Cole and Malcolm where he's – like you said, he's very nurturing. He's very sweet. He's very – he knows how to speak to children. You know, he makes everything into like these fun little games in order to get them to open up. And it seems like he could have been a great father even though he never was a father, which is kind of ironic for him being a child psychologist. And the way that Shyamalan directs these scenes, especially like that, that first scene – um with Cole in a lot of these scenes is he uses a lot of long takes they're in, they're kind of like Hayden because he use he you see different setups and the camera moves around. But like the kitchen scene when when the drawers open, it might be the best shot in the whole movie. Yeah, it's a terrific one take that fo- where he follows Tony Collette's character Lynn um, from the kitchen into the laundry room, and then she comes back into the kitchen and all the drawers and cabinets are open, and it's a one of one of the best moments of the film. It's a long take. The Italian restaurant scene when Anna on the anniversary is signing for the check and talking to herself, but Malcolm thinks he's she's like uh, just ignoring him that's a great long take where he doesn't cut from actor to actor he slowly pans from actor to actor which is something that is pretty rarely done nowadays for for um, cinematography um, the the freak chat outside with the the bully neighbor kid that's all one take so Shyamalan put in a lot of really long takes in this film To really draw you into each scene Really well choreographed and also very simple Yeah, he does a really great job of manipulating the audience Kind of like Hitchcock does in a film like Psycho Where he shows you only what he wants you to see But also he's not doing it in an unfair way He's like playing it out like it actually would happen You know what I mean? Like that that anniversary dinner is a perfect example Because He's he's tricking us at the same time as showing us exactly what it, what what happened in that interaction and how it could go either way and that's why you're fooled the entire film thinking that Bruce Willis is alive the whole time you think his marriage is falling apart that's really what's happening and, and that's what you assume is going on and you have probably it, it's up there for the best child performances of all time by Haley Joel Osment like this this kid like it's so rare to see a young person with that much um, ability to perform on camera like this with an emote so much and. You know, he he was like a perfect casting for this role, and you know, I think he has like that. Like, he has iconic face, like his scared look with those big blue eyes, and you see a contrast with Bruce Willis. Like this, the shot of him saying "I see dead people." That's such an iconic image. And I think that he just was so unbelievable in this role for being such a little kid, such a daunting task, a difficult role to pull off. And, I mean, I think Shyamalan found like a diamond in the rough with him. Yeah, nominated for Best Supporting Actor in this role, which was incredible, with a bunch of heavyweight actors because also nominated that year was Michael Caine, who won for The Cider House Rules, Jude Law for The Talented Mr. Ripley, Michael Clark Duncan in The Green Mile, and a few other great, great actors year. and actresses actress for, for that role. But yeah. that, that was, again, this is an they excellent probably year. probably would have won if it was a different year. Maybe. Yeah. You know, those are just some great performances that, I mean, obviously, Michael Caine's one, one of the best, best all ever. time. Yeah. But Cole Seer, really great character that he pulled off. And the name Cole Seer is really interesting because it's spelled S-E-A-R, but it's pronounced Seer. You know, like he sees things. And Cole, you could say, looks like it's soul. So he sees souls. He's a soul seer. Um I love I love his nice. introduction where he's wearing these huge glasses that don't fit and you're like what these glasses don't fit this kid he's run sprints to the church and he seems very intelligent he speaks latin to malcolm in the church and then he steals that statue of mary and you're like oh this troubled kid is a thief too like what's going on but then you find out later he's stealing he steals those things for protection and according to michael sarah this was the first film that he ever auditioned for. He read for the part of Cole, and the scene he did was the magic trick scene with Malcolm, but he later admitted that he did not do it too cheerfully. He did do it too cheerfully. He had not read the entire script, so we didn't know that Cole was supposed to be an introverted and quiet boy, whereas Haley read the script three times before he had his audition, which was why, one of the reasons why M. Knight was so impressed with him. So, yeah, he understood the character from the get go. And that, what's really fascinating if you think about Cole and his perspective is, like, every day for him is, like, a living nightmare. Every That's why he runs to the church because he's constantly terrified. And that's what he says to Malcolm. Like, uh, Malcolm is like, what do you want to get out of our sessions together? And then Malcolm – and then Cole goes, I don't want to be afraid anymore. I don't want to be scared anymore because he can't go anywhere without the possibility of a ghost um, scaring him and haunting him. Like, the, bat, the scene when – and I love – what M Night Shyamalan did, which was so smart, is he didn't show the ghosts until after Cole revealed the secret of him being able to see ghosts. It's like the first two acts, we don't see yeah. anything. So I think it was so terrific to do it that way, where the audience is, he, the audience doesn't know if something's really wrong with Cole or if it's all in his head, just like Malcolm. So we're in the perspective of Malcolm for the first half of the film, but then once Cole reveals his secret. Then we're in Cole's perspective and we finally see what he's seeing and we now finally understand why he behaves this way, why he's so scared. We got a few hints like we heard the voice in the in that box, but and that's still something like, oh, it could be he could be suffering from schizophrenia, like hearing voices. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is a mental condition. But then when we see that he is actually seeing these dead people and they are actual ghosts, especially which is proven true when he helps the little girl who was poisoned by her stepmother. Then we know these are real dead people who are interacting with Cole. Then we understand how terrifying his life must be. Why he's so quiet, why he is afraid of everything, because he can't turn the corner without the idea possibility of a ghost being right there. Yeah, we also follow Lynn Sears' perspective a lot, which is his mother played by Tony Collette, who is phenomenal in this movie. She got an Oscar nomination as well. And I like the cabinet scene is a great example of that where we don't we don't fully know that he sees ghosts yet. We're just going by what he's saying. And it could be something else. He could just be coping with trauma or something like that. And then the cabinet scene is so great because, like we said earlier, it's that long take where it it follows Lynn from the kitchen into the laundry room. And then she goes back to the kitchen where Cole is sitting down eating – what is he eating? uh, Cocoa Puffs? Yeah, not eating them. He's not eating the Cocoa Puffs because they're getting soggy. And every single cabinet and drawer is open, which is like – Let's see. Could he have done that? It's impossible. I didn't hear a thing. Yeah, and it was it was like ten seconds. And he's eight. He's yeah. like he's like four foot six. So how do you get the top ones too? And it's very quick, but it's so well done that it's like in your head you're like, all right, he has to see ghosts or something. And then Shyamalan also proved it impossibility for him doing it because when he gets up from the table, because his palms were planted on the table when he gets up, uh, Lynn sees that the fog of. The heat from his hands. Yeah, the heat from his hands, which means that his hands were down on the table the entire time. Yeah. So clearly, it was impossible for him to do it. Yeah, so I love how, like you said, M. Night just slowly waits to reveal the ghosts, just like Jaws with Spielberg waiting so long to show you the shark, and it adds so much more to the monster element. And also, Cole has a lot uh, in common with Vincent from the opening scene, but before we get into that, how about we head into our intermission? Let's do it. Let's start with our movie quote competition. Have a little fun. This one's for me. Time to go mobile. Time to go mobile. It's <laughs> Bane and the Dark Knight Rises. Yes, sir. <laughs> he says that one all the freaking time. I, what's the other one I say a lot of but of Bane? Yeah, I said I said it like the last five days in a row. I can't remember. Man. You always say Bane quotes. <laughs> it's the best. I have a quote from one second from from Danny Jean Crombie, our friend. Okay, they used to call me Anal Girl. I was very neat and organized. <laughs> I was very neat and organized. organized. That is 500 Days of Summer. Nice job. Good one. <laughs> dude, I've seen that movie like 12 times. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a great quote. <laughs> she, she said that uh, uh, the photo of my very neatly done bed reminded reminded her of that quote. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did a guessing game on our Instagram stories of who guessing whose room was whose, judging by the uh, decor yeah. in books and stuff. Yeah, Obviously, <laughs> I had a dune book on my bed. <laughs> All right, guess this movie release year, Signs. Oh, shoot. That's a good one. 2002. Nice. Yeah? Nailed it, bro. Nice. Nailed it. Thanks. Nailed it. Nailed it. Okay. Guess this movie release year. The Rock. 1996. 96. ding, 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 ding. Yes. Correct. Got nice. It. We're killing it. Nailed it, bro. We are killing it. We're four for four. Yeah. Nice. All right. Don't mess up. <laughs> no, you don't mess up. Yeah, movie shoot. pop quiz time. I'm Tom so Cruise was nominated for an Oscar at the same awards as The Sixth Sense for, from a film in 1999. What was the movie? Magnolia. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. and need to get that. Okay, now it's all down to you. Oh, for my the God. perfect score. We've Probably never sure. done it before. Have we never done a perfect score? I don't think score? so. Not that I remember. <laughs> okay, who is Ben Affleck's leading lady in Pearl Harbor? Ah, uh, <laughs> what's, oh, man, hold on, hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on. It's all coming down to you, man. What's her name? She's in Underworld. Yes. Oh, wh- who is it? Why can't I think of get her name? name? You can't just say the girl from Underworld. Get back sale. Yes. Got it. Nailed it, High six five. for six. High six five in the air. Six. Let's go! Wow, that Let's never happened. Must have been that T. <laughs> <laughs> all right, who we got for haters and unsubscribers this week? So we got some real haters, some some mean haters. Yeah, we had a few for sure. So I posted a Lord of the Rings clip talking about. We listed off all the ages of the main cast of Lord of the Rings, and it's really interesting clip to see like how old they all are. And then James, he pronounced Galadriel, Galadriel, which is what I would say too. Sorry, like Boston. we're not pronounced everything wrong on purpose. Yeah. But then uh, we, he Herbuses. got so much. There were like 50 comments that people hey, were giving you viral. shit. Hey, it viral. I'm good. It's like good. So many people. My, my favorite comment, though, was uh, Versetter verse wrote, imagine the way he said Galadriel and not wanting to punch him in the face. Bring it. <laughs> Want my address? And then I, I replied, imagine being triggered by someone mispronouncing a name. For real. It's a TikTok video. He's to punch someone in the Jeez face. Louise. Get a life, bro. My goodness, I'm sorry I said Galadriel. (laughs) Sorry. This is how I was raised. Go to Massachusetts. No one says anything correct. Yeah, that's actually true. This is very true. (laughs) City full of people pronouncing words wrong. And then we have, help, I can't think of a, a username, please. He commented in our Spider Man, one of our Spider Man memes, the uh, the Aunt May one that I posted with uh, Willem Dafoe, <laughs> with the Drake hair. He wrote, "Bro, spoilers came out like two weeks after the movie came out. I'm sorry to say I have unsubscribed, but then I convinced him to resubscribe." And then, our Godfather to your patron of this episode is Ariana Rickin, a huge fan of our show. We love you so much. We appreciate your support. Ariana, on the day of our, our daughter's wedding, we made you an offer you could have refused. You yeah, became a godfather patron, thank, Ariana. Thank you for being a godfather patron. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Just like uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just a groan. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have a Q&A question from Anthony DeMeo. What's a movie quote that has impacted your life? That's a good question. A movie quote that has impacted my life. I would, uh, Carpe Diem, seize the day. That's pretty good. Yeah. I would say Dune, but I, the book, <laughs> there was the book first. That was too recent, That though. was 2002 but, recent. But, I, but the book was, the "I Fear That is the Mind Killer was a quote that I like started using in my life in 2018 when I read the book, 2000, yeah, 2017, 2018 when I read that, but that movie just came out. Um, when did you, you read it? <laughs> <laughs> Got to reference it. <laughs> um, hmm. Movie quote, that's tough. Good question. On the spot. I would probably say, like, not directly just one quote, but a lot of the ideology of Tyler Durden, some of it in the openings, like half of Fight Club, is really inspirational, motivational before it gets too chaotic, you know, um, in terms of, like, talking about about the commercialization of the world and how, you know, this generation is lost because of what – you know, the corporate world has done to the Western civilization, stuff like that and how people have lost their meaning in life and how you have to find meaning in life. I think like that whole that whole philosophy by Tyler in the first half of Fight Club is very inspirational and enticing for anyone. I would definitely agree. I just really gravitated to what the themes of the first half of that movie were for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. Now um we have a great supporter this week. Let's hear it's it a five star review from Maxwell J V I will never unsubscribe. Yes. I drive three hours to Detroit for work twice a week. Wow, that's crazy. Dang. And I randomly listened to this one. <laughs> and I randomly listened to this one day ever since I haven't missed an episode. The back and forth is funny, and you can tell they're really enjoying themselves. I absolutely love what you guys are doing. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Maxwell. Thanks, that Maxwell. That drive sounds terrible, but yeah, hey, man. Glad we can entertain you during we're, it. Yeah, I'm so happy. Make that, that cheddar cheese. We're there in the car with you, pal. Appreciate it so much. On the Stay in Film History today is January twentieth. In nineteen forty nine, J. Edgar Hoover gives Shirley Temple a tear gas fountain pen. What? In nineteen sixty eight, Arthur Penn's film Bonnie and Clyde premieres. In two thousand and six, high school musical was released. In two thousand eight, Breaking Bad premiered on AMC. In two thousand seventeen, Split. And my Shyamalan's movie, and the founder were released. And happy birthday to the late Federico Fellini, David Lynch, Rain Wilson, and Evan Peters. My streaming recommendation today is The Thin Red Line, which is on Amazon Prime, included with your membership. This is a phenomenal war film by Terrence Malick. Nice pick. I picked Cold War also on Amazon Prime, an amazing uh, period piece. So good. Yeah, you love that movie. It's, you gotta watch I it. I haven't man. seen it yet. You, oh my god! You get, that should make that should be your next movie to watch. I'll put it on my 100%. watch list. You'll Thanks, be man. blown away by Thanks, it, man. I'm always looking for new movies to watch. So everyone, send send us DMs of what we should watch. Mm. It's finally 2022, everybody. So now is the time to finally get your act together and get yourself groomed up for the new year, new use. So I recommend getting the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer from Manscape.com so that your significant other doesn't see ghosts every time they look at you. <laughs> use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout from, for for 20 off and free shipping on your entire order today at manscaped.com. Manscaped has been launching a bunch of new products. We've currently been using their 2 shampoo and conditioner, their brand-new body wash. Both smell amazing. Also, I highly recommend getting their performance packages. The 4.0 is a bundle of a bunch of their great gifts, including the lawnmower, the weed whack, some men's wipes. But I also recommend their... Deodorizers, boxer briefs, tons of goodies. There are currently two million men worldwide who trust Manscape with their grooming needs. They are a special friend of the show. So use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout from Manscape.com. You're gonna get twenty percent off your entire order and free shipping worldwide. Do you love movie posters? We do. Our set is decked out with a ton of amazing posters, and we got them courtesy of MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to their website and use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of pretty much every film and TV show imaginable. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever your poster needs are, MoviePosters.com can handle it. Now again, be sure to head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order Today, now back into our episode. Like I said before the intermission, Cole and Vincent have a lot in common, and it becomes clear by the end of the film that Vincent had the same, um, you could say, uh, curse or ability as Cole um, suffered from. He suffered from seeing ghosts as well, because Vincent says that line to Malcolm in the opening of the movie. It's something like, "I know why we're afraid, why you, we get scared, or something when we're alone. I know one year alone. I know why you get scared. I know why, and also." If you look closely, he has a white spot on his hair in the back of his head, and Cole has a white spot in his hair uh, beside his ear as well. And so I, those look like they're markings of someone who can see ghosts, because clearly we see in the photographs, the childhood photographs of of Cole, when Lynn is looking at them for a, a new from from a new perspective, and she notices that there's like a lens flare behind uh, Cole in all the photos that clearly. That is some kind of a mark of a person who can see the undead. Yeah, and it must be a really terrifying thing. And this movie, it's a great redemption arc for Malcolm because he failed Vincent Gray. He wasn't able to help him. And this is what we can assume Cole would turn into is a Vincent Gray completely lost his mind because of decades of seeing ghosts everywhere he goes and no one being able to help him, no one believing him, and probably not even being able to. To tell people the secret that he has, and so because Vincent Gray killed himself, and Malcolm thinks that he survived this shooting, this attack, and he seems when he finally finds out that Cole is suffering from the same thing after he listens to the recording that he had of Vincent Gray when he left the left the room, and he could hear the ghosts speaking in Spanish, saying that he didn't want to die. And then he finally realized that Vincent Gray was suffering from the same thing. He's even more motivated to help Cole than ever before, because at that point, he says to himself, like, I can't help this kid into his voice recorder. Um, medication will probably be needed. Even hospitalization will probably be necessary. And so he seems like he's about to give up on Cole, just like he gave up on Vincent. And also, it's very reminiscent of that tape recorder scene in The Exorcist in the basement. That That's also like, you can tell he used a lot of inspiration from The Exorcist, You have a single parent with a young child suffering from whatever's happening, whereas the girl is possessed in The Exorcist. And in this one, the boy is not possessed, but he has the ability to see um, dead people. So uh, you can definitely see the inspiration he took from The Exorcist. And it's not like ripping it off. I think he did a really great job of, you know, using that as a starting off point for his idea, for the entire concept of the story. Yeah. And also, Tony Klett is so great in this film as uh, Lynn. And she actually – this is the first horror film I think she was in, and then she eventually got dubbed a Scream Queen because she was in this. She's been in Hereditary. She was in Krampus, Fright Night 2011. So she's been in a ton of horror films, and this one she's great in. And Lynn herself is going through some sort of trauma as well. We find out later on in the film uh, when Cole eventually reveals his secret to her in the car – that she's been going through the emotional trauma of losing her mother at an early age when she, you know, she was at that dance recital. Her mother, she didn't think her mother got to see her dance. But Cole tells her that your mother did get to see you dance and you look like an angel. And also we, we can assume that she was, is suffering post-trauma from clearly an abusive relationship with her ex-husband. You know, you can probably assume that those words that cole writes on this on the piece of paper in the red font are things that his father would say to him like i'll kill you if you don't shut that baby up shut that baby up i can't take it anymore stuff like that so you can assume that he was a very bad guy i from that i i'm guessing that his father died and then cole sees him sometimes and that's what the father says when cole sees him maybe that's my guess i think i think maybe he's in jail or something uh, yeah, but if if Cole was a baby, how would he know what he was saying when he was a baby? What if, if he went away when he was young? You well, know. I, I True. actually... But yeah, I do like how it's not even addressed what happened yeah. to him. It's not important. It's very vague. It's, it's kept open. Maybe you're... You're probably right. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, anytime. And ultimately, you know, I think that Cole, yes, he's a seer, but I think what Malcolm makes him realize is that he he is a healer. He, he can be a healer for both the, uh, the dead and the living. He heals both. Like, he, there's a great moment when... Lynn's having a nightmare and she's like wrestling around in her bed and speaking and talking in her sleep and clearly having a terrible dream. And then Cole comes in to her bedroom. He doesn't wake her up, but he he places his hand on her head and she immediately calms down and goes back into a pleasant sleep. And then he also, you know, heals the the dead, the ghosts. He eventually learns that he can help them um, uh, and move on to the next to the afterlife by healing their trauma, by healing, healing them, by making them feel fulfilled and ready to leave after, you know, like, for example, the little girl finally being able to tell her father that she was poisoned by her stepmother. So I think that there are a few clear examples that Cole. Is it stepmother or mother? It could be. It could be mother. I, I think I'm assuming stepmother for some reason. It's mother. It could be. The, yeah, it's probably yeah. the mother. And so um, Cole, eventually, I think he'll fall into this role as an adult of being a healer to these people. And I like this concept so much about Cole, whether what's going on and being able to see ghosts since he was born, whether it's a curse or a gift. And it reminds me so much of how we were just talking about Constantine and Constantine went through the same thing. I have this curse, whereas Gabriel tells him, no, you have a gift. And it's how you use that gift as to whether you'll be able to live with it probably or have a fulfilled life. And it takes Cole and his, his sessions with Malcolm for Malcolm to suggest that I think I know how to make it all go away or, or make it okay is just listen to them. They want, I think they want your help, which he does. He starts to do, which is why I really think that it would be cool to have a sequel to this film. Yeah. Of like a grown up Cole like helping ghosts and figuring out mysteries. Because when we when the young girl played by Misha Barton who's puking, when he helps her and they go to the the wake and he finds that VHS that she secretly recorded of her mother poisoning her, and it gives her. You know, it it fulfills her need to to want to express what happened to her, so that she, like you said, she can move on Catharsis. to the next life. Yeah, you know, she's not ready to leave yet. She's staying. There's a reason why these ghosts are still in this world. They're still being. They're showing themselves to people like Cole. We can assume he's not the only one in the world like this, and they want people's help. I guarantee Cole's grandmother disappeared um, after he revealed that story to um, Lynn. Probably because okay. maybe that's something that the grandmother always wanted to tell Lynn. And so once Cole tells Lynn the story about the dance recital, then I'm sure Cole never saw his grandmother again. And Cole's been always just too terrified to tell her that he can see ghosts, probably because he's he's a very smart kid. As soon as he gets in trouble for drawing what he sees in his everyday life, he goes right back to drawing people smiling, rainbows, dogs running, because no one has meetings about that. And he does that immediately because that's how smart he is. And a ghost, a ghost trying to communicate with Cole, to tell them what they need from him is frightening. Like the little girl puking up the poison soup, it's horrify- it's a horrifying image, but she's trying to show him what happened to her. So she's trying to communicate this, I was poisoned. But once he sees her throwing up, it's so scary, he runs away from her. So yeah. he needs to learn that ev- eventually that these ghosts, they're not trying to hurt him. They're not trying to scare him. They're trying to show, tell him what happened. They're trying to tell him something important that will help them move on. It takes the audience like the same exact time to realize that they're not trying to hurt him because you're. I was scared. Of, I'm scared of every single ghost yeah. in this movie. The vomiting girl, the yeah. boy who walks past him when he's he's taking a leak in the middle of the night with the with the hole in the back of his head. Yeah, obviously the hanging bodies inside of his school. But then when you learn that they just want his help, then it's like, oh, okay, I'm not scared by these ghosts anymore. Yeah, and I think one of the best reveals is the ghost who looks seems as though it's his mother dressed in a, in a bathrobe in the middle of the night when he goes into the kitchen and, he, and she turns around. It's a woman who slit her wrists and starts, like, screaming at him. Like, that's an example of I'm sure the ghost just wants to know that the reason why she wants to, her loved ones to know that the reason why she killed herself was because of her abusive husband where she probably didn't tell them that. And I'm sure if, he, if Cole tells her family members – why this woman killed herself, maybe then she'll be ready to move on as well. So things like that where the ghost trying to communicate is actually terrifying at first. Yeah, it's a scary movie. There are so many... Terrifying moments, but also there are a lot of funny, light-hearted moments and feel-good moments. I I think there are a couple of really funny scenes, especially when Anne we see her at the jewelry store that she works and she's <laughs> selling that sapphire to the couple. and the and you can assume the the fiance or the husband's like, how much is that thing? And she's in the girl, she's convincing the girl like, oh, you need this. She it's, has her try it on. Yeah, she try it on. The boyfriend's like, oh my god, no! <laughs> it's super funny. <laughs> a plain ring for your plain wife. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, there's some great emotional scenes. I think that car, that car scene with Colin and Lynn at the Colin, yeah, Lynn at the end of the film, it's so emotionally impactful. I think it's the, I think it could be the most powerful moment of the film. And Tony Collette is so good in it. It's just really a terrific scene. And it's moments like that that really elevate the film more than just like a typical horror film, a typical ghost story. Just this great emotional resonance in these film in this film, and also. Uh, Malcolm's catharsis at the end of the film. Um, When he's, he says goodbye to Anna because he's ready to move on to the afterlife. Very, very moving. Really terrific scene. And the reveal of the twist at the end of the movie is so great. That's what really seals the deal of this movie. When Malcolm goes to his wife and she's, you know, watching the wedding video again. And she's, like, talking to herself in her sleep. And she's, like, almost... It's almost like she can talk to Malcolm when she's asleep because he's a ghost. Maybe... She maybe can sense his presence I Maybe there's some sort of communication, yeah, subconsciously that goes on in that situation. Then he sees the ring that she probably was holding in her hand. His wedding ring fall and roll to him under the under the chair, and then he looks to his hand, and he has no ring on it. Then he looks to the door that he always goes to his office downstairs, and there's a table there with books, and now everything's starting to make sense. He's replaying the conversations he's had with Cole the entire film in his mind where ghosts only see what they want to see. They don't know that they're dead, and then he feels the blood on the back of his jacket and then realizes he's been a ghost. He's been dead this entire time. Yeah, and then everything else makes sense, especially the way Anna acts, the way um... – like her trying to like start a new relationship with that guy and someone throws a rock at the window, Things why they weren't able to see him even though the camera pans from the store to Bruce Willis like right there like 10 feet away, but they they act as though they don't see anyone. Now we understand all these moments of the film that may have been confusing at first, but now they totally make sense. It also seems that because Malcolm, when he doesn't know he's a ghost and he's not ready as a ghost to move on, into the next point of the afterlife for what happens after we die, it seems because he's still there spiritually on this field of earth, the plane, that Anne cannot let it go, let him go yet. That's why I think also when he says that, I think I can go now, and he says also, things are going to be a lot easier for you now. He says something like that before he leaves. He's not haunting her. Yeah, he's not haunting yeah. her, her presence anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's a wow. We just. Tied that all together. Tied it with like a, bow, a bow, wrapped it up like a present. Yeah, so yeah, I believe Malcolm he two things like obviously he needed to help someone, he helped Cole, which is why he was there, and also he needed to move on and understand that he's not gonna be with Anne anymore. So I would say those are the two things that he needed to do um in order to achieve the cathartic moment of realizing that he's ready to move on and want to move on. Yeah, and what did I say when this movie was over the other day? <laughs> Remember what I said? Nah, it went right to roll credits, and I was like, "Oh, what a happy ending!" <laughs> <laughs> he's like a happy ending. He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> Her husband is dead. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know what I mean? Because it's it a does, feel good ending. It does because like Bruce Willis like smiles, and then it goes, it fades to white, like he's moving on to the afterlife, and it's like he's in heaven now, and it's like, but he's still dead. <laughs> She's got a dead husband. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks <laughs> and this kid still sees ghosts yeah it's horrifying <laughs> like it doesn't work out well for anyone <laughs> It's feel good though because the concept is so fascinating it's something that's human beings have been plagued in their minds forever is what happens after we die is there an afterlife are there ghosts are there spirits wandering our our everyday presence and are they do we I just buy, not dude? see them and you know the, the motifs of sight and blindness that go on through the entire film and then obviously the motifs of the light versus the dark Good versus Evil. I think those are prevalent throughout the entire film as well and you know I really enjoy the hell out of this movie. I'm so glad that we covered it because I I haven't seen it in like 15 years or something like that. Like half of my lifetime ago, I saw I this. I hadn't seen it in it's a very a long, long time. time it's either. really good. Yeah, I hadn't seen it in a very long time. There, there are some like mild like loopholes here and there, and, and like some things you're like, oh, why didn't he do that? But you know, overall, I think it's an excellent story, really great script from M Night. It's his best one. It's probably he'll be his best movie his entire career. Yeah, it's his best. It's a standout. I think it's a really terrific film, an awesome horror film, very original, very unique. And um, there's a reason why it was so successful and why it is so well received uh, critically and audience-wise. Now, our trivia section is going to be a little smaller this time because we actually squeezed in a lot of our trivia in the episode. It's it's more fun That's something we're trying to do for uh, y'all so you can hear the trivia facts more more early on in the episode. But there's one we didn't say where... Oh, actually, no, there's a few. Okay. M. Night Shyamalan often appears in cameos in his movies as doctors. Um, And the reason why he does this is because uh, most of the members of his family are doctors So as a way of tributing his families He often plays a doctor in his movies M. Night's actually also from Philadelphia Which is the, the city that this film takes place in A lot of his movies are take place in, in Philadelphia. He was, he was born in India But he was raised in Philadelphia yeah. Outs- Outside of Philadelphia In one of mm-hmm. those affluent towns yeah. I can't remember the name of I it think it's where, I think it's where these brownstones are It seems like it I think that's where he grew up The Sixth Sense was rented by 80 million people in 2000 Making it the year's top rated VHS and DVD title. That's insane. Everybody saw this movie. Everyone saw it. Everyone saw it. Because it's, I mean, it's not rated R, right? Or is it rated R? It's rated R. There's a lot of gore in it. We saw it when we were kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We saw this when we were little. (laughs) David Vogel, then president of production... Of Walt Disney Studios, read M. Night Shyamalan's spec script for the Sixth Cents and instantly loved it. Without obtaining corporate approval, Vogel bought the rights to the script despite the high price of $3 million and the stipulation that Shyamalan had to direct the film. Sure, you got a pat on the back for that. Good call. All right, and that wraps our episode of. The Sixth Sense from M. Night Shyamalan. We hope you enjoyed this episode and this spooky film as much as we do. Be sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast today. I see dead people. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.